This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up... Why are Muslims always part of the story when mass shootings occur, even when a white American is the perpetrator? We'll discuss that question. And black women from across the diaspora have produced an important book on gender studies in Africa. But first, a bill that would require all students in the California State University system to pass a course in ethnic studies before graduating has been put on hold after meeting fierce opposition. Dr. Gilda Ochoa, a professor of Chicano Latino Studies at Pomona College, was a key player in pushing for the legislation. Ochoa and her brother Enrique wrote an article calling for passage of the Ethnic Studies Bill. She's not happy that it has been sidelined. No, absolutely not. We've been waiting for decades for ethnic studies as a requirement, both in our K-12, through along with in our institutions of higher education here in California. Yes, California has a 75% student majority of people who are not considered white in the United States. It does. And unfortunately, it's been long in not addressing our student population and the communities that really form the base of California historically, but also in our contemporary scene. And so not only in terms of the curriculum, but also how the curriculum is delivered, who's in our classroom as educators. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And ethnic studies is one piece of that. And the fact that it's been delayed yet again is cause for concern, especially in our current political climate where we always need ethnic studies, but we see it explicitly as a necessity in our current period. And what kind of opposition is that bill meeting? Well, unfortunately, it met a whole host of opposition by people that had a kind of a political machine and they got the ear of um, politicians. And so the politicians caved. So a couple of things. One is kind of some of the more conservative groups who just don't believe that there should be a discussion about race and racism because they still buy the idea that somehow we are post-racial or that there was racism was never an issue. But another group or kind of subsets of those groups have also critiqued really the foundation of what ethnic studies is, believing that it needs to be broader and include the experiences of Southern Eastern European immigrants, such as Jewish Americans and the Holocaust, which again are crucial dynamics, but really do not get at the foundations of what ethnic studies is. Unfortunately, some of the liberal mainstream media has also picked up on some of the inflammatory language that has been used by the critics, referring to ethnic studies and the model curriculum that was drafted by 20 experts as jargon, as biased, a very loaded language they've used as anti-Semitic because there's a discussion about Islamophobia, 
There's a discussion about Palestinian struggles. And so the media has kind of picked up on those buzzwords and allowed that to kind of fan the flames in some ways of hate against ethnic studies rather than allowing for a, a more detailed discussion. And again, unfortunately, some of the people that were initially supporting it have caved to those political groups. But what we really see is resistance to a delegitimization and sanctification of the white man's story. That's exactly it. And so the very critique that we are seeing against ethnic studies is precisely why we need ethnic studies. There are too many people that still are in denial about the legacy and contemporary realities of people of color in these United States. And you're absolutely right, want to deny that and are really kind of afraid of what it means to interrogate the systems of power and privilege that are at stake. Now, this bill would mandate ethnic studies in the California State University system. Students would have to take a course or not graduate. But in the K-12 system, you point out that there's very little in the way of ethnic studies. So students who get to the university system likely have never even been exposed. That's exactly the case. So I've been teaching here at Pomona College in Chicanex Latinx Studies for over 20 years and before that as a graduate student at UCLA. And I typically begin my classes by asking students, you know, how many of you have learned about Menes versus Westminster, the Lemon Grove incident? How many of you have taken a Chicano Latino Studies class? By and large, I'm lucky if there's one or two. And students, over the course of the semester, they're angry. They're asking questions about why haven't we been taught that? I also teach teachers who've had, you know, more than what they've gotten their BA, they're now working on their MA. And they, too, oftentimes have not learned this crucial history. And so it's a disservice to our students, to our communities, and for those of us who really believe if we are going to talk about radical transformation, we need to know what are the foundations of the United States and how do these dynamics play themselves out in the contemporary scene. Yes, many Americans don't even know where Honduras and Guatemala are, and yet there are huge numbers of folks from those countries who now live here. That's absolutely the case. And so what that allows is for a discussion about immigration that really is superficial, if not outright incorrect, right? We hear conversations about individuals migrating by choice, as opposed to thinking about the long legacy of U.S. imperialism and what that has meant for the devastation of communities, as opposed to talking about environmental degradation, right? These larger dynamics. And so if we don't provide students with the very foundations to understand why people migrate, what are these larger dynamics at stake, then of course it's easy to reproduce notions of individualism, ideas of choice, ideas that somehow people are coming because they want to come. And so that really allows for the perpetuation of kind of neoliberal discourse and neoliberal policies, right, if we're not getting really to the roots. And that's what ethnic studies aims to do, get to the roots of these issues, looking at systems, but also in doing so really centering the lived realities of people that we know as communities of color, African Americans, Asian Pacific Islanders, Chicanas, Latinos, Central Americans, indigenous populations.
Yes, you can't talk about black studies without talking about slavery, which means talking about colonialism. And you can't talk about other folks' ethnic studies without talking about imperialism, whether you use the word or not. Absolutely. And so what students will say when I ask them, well, what have you learned, you know, when they're here in the college, what have you learned about Chicanos, Latinos, African Americans? Typically, it's a blip in their textbook, right? So oh, maybe they learned about the Mexican American War, but they learn about it from a U.S. framework. They don't learn about the War of the North American Invasion, right? They learn about the Mexican American War, maybe in a paragraph. They'll learn about slavery. So, right, blacks are reduced to slavery, right? And again, it's all through a center that doesn't contest capitalism, doesn't contest white supremacy, does not link the legacy of slavery, of colonialism, of conquest to disparities of wealth in our contemporary period. So even if they are learning very, they're learning very little, and then when they're learning it, it's typically decontextualized to their own lives. And so that connection is not made, and it makes it difficult. Now, some students are making that on their own because they're learning these histories in their homes and in their communities and maybe through social media and other sources. But being in school eight hours a day for K-12 students, again, it can be very isolating and alienating if our histories continue to be dismissed, misrepresented, and completely invisibilized. So this is really about hegemony, control <laughs> of the historical narrative. Absolutely. So the various bills that are here in California with regards to the K through 12 to try to make ethnic studies a high school requirement is AB 331. And the one you referred to initially, if we're to make it a requirement for all Cal State University students, AB 1460, um, really do speak to the need that it's long in coming that we need to make sure that ethnic studies is provided. But also that, then this is the other concern, that ethnic studies the integrity is maintained because ethnic studies is not only a curriculum, as we've kind of spelled out, and, but it's also theoretical frameworks, right, as you mentioned, in terms of talking about U.S. imperialism and capitalism, whether, right, how those are talked about. It's thinking intersectionally about racism and classism, sexism and, and heterosexism, but it's also a pedagogy. It's how we teach, which is just as important. So really providing a space for critical dialogue, student-centered spaces, connecting with our surrounding communities. The whole idea of ethnic studies was never to reproduce the status quo. It was really to always think about who are our organic intellectuals, making sure our institutions are opened up to organic intellectuals to challenge the way that knowledge has been produced and used against communities of color. Well, that certainly goes against the recent, not that recent, trend to impose on education courses that are specifically designed to get people jobs in yeah. U.S. corporations. Absolutely. It, it really does speak to who controls our schools, what is the purpose of education, and how can we make sure that our schools, right, as public institutions, and we need to make sure they maintain that they are public institutions, are really serving the public good and not private enterprise, which has long been the case and increasingly so. Students who take these kinds of courses seem to get more engaged in education in general. Studies have shown that they do better on standardized tests yes, than yes. students who don't take ethnic studies courses. 
Absolutely. So we know this personally, qualitatively, and quantitatively. So the kind of classic example in terms of it, Tucson, where, was un- where ethnic studies was under assault, Mexican-American studies program, which was a thriving program, was showing, yes, exactly what you said. Students were excelling on standardized tests. They were doing better in their GPA. They were going on to college. Recent um, research at, out of Stanford was also finding similar things for the students who had taken ethnic studies here in California. California. And then what I see in my classes here at the college level at Pomona College is students will say things like, this is a breath of fresh air. They feel like what they've seen and what they've experienced is affirmed. And that affirmation provides them with a language, a framework to understand other dynamics. And they take that to, into their other classes. It's not uncommon for students because we're at a disadvantage here in ethnic studies because students don't know about it until they get to college. They may not think about it as a major. They may start out pre-med, taking their science classes. And then lo and behold, they're in our classes almost every semester. And then they decide, to be a good doctor, I need to know the foundations and the contemporary realities of the communities I'm going to be serving. And so they start to feel, yeah, affirmed and empowered, tell their stories and speak their say, not only in our classes, but also in the larger institutions of higher education. So really, they're foundational to shifting frameworks and sense of self and ideas about community. Yes, the lesson might be that students that learn more about their connection to the world become more interested in the world and therefore in getting knowledge of that world. That's absolutely the case. And again, we see that across, you know, K through 18 and higher. When the curriculum is relevant, when it's applied as opposed to the traditional form of schooling, which is the banking and you're feeding people information, going back to Paolo Ferrari's critique of the schooling system, right? But when it's applied, when it's engaged, when it's student-driven, then yes, it, it inspires a spark, a desire to, to ask questions, to think critically, to envision another way of being. But too often, um, our schools are still not providing those spaces. And this is, again, really what ethnic studies is about. It's about imagining transformative possibilities and also working to enact those kinds of possibilities by working in collaboration. Because ethnic studies is also about critiquing the individualistic meritocratic frameworks in our society. And it's about how can we work together as a collective for the greater good. What is the state of support for or resistance to ethnic studies among teachers? That's an excellent question. So many school districts have taken it upon themselves here in California to already offer ethnic studies graduation requirements. So LAUSD, Sacramento, San Francisco, Oakland, San Diego, Montevideo, there's teachers also in Pomona that are teaching it, um, San Bernardino. So there are teachers who are committed, who've seen the value both in themselves, they know the literature, they've seen it in their students, and they truly are committed to offering, and they've been doing it on their own for decades in all reality. The move really to have this model curriculum and also to make it a high school requirement was to make sure that all students have access to ethnic studies. There are still too few that are sitting in classrooms and in schools where it's not an option. So the teachers have been very supportive and a number of school districts really came out strongly in favor of the bill to make it a requirement. Have we seen students organizing on their own to demand these kinds of studies? 
Yes, students have been organizing since the beginning, right? So even, again, this is, we're celebrating the 50th year um, or anniversary, if you will, of the Third World Student Liberation Front at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley, and it was a grassroots student-driven movement. And likewise, the work that I do in Chicano Studies, 1968, the students were the ones that walked out demanding relevant curriculum. So there's a long legacy of student organizing. I think also to the demonstrations that students were engaged in in fall 2015, drawing on Black Lives Matter and police brutality and calling for changes within the institutions of higher education. And one of their many demands were more faculty of color, but also more ethnic studies classes, more queer studies classes. So yes, students have long been organizing for their rights and for the education that they want and that they deserve. Those of us who don't live in California hear it described as a kind of blue heaven, an overwhelmingly democratic and progressive political environment. But there's plenty of resistance when it gets down to who controls the narrative. I think you phrased it beautifully. That's the contradiction, right? There's this image, and yes, we, I mean, compared to some other states, there's a lot of important things that are happening, but that's why it was especially frustrating that, again, a collective of 20 educators, K-12 through um, professors who had been writing and researching and teaching on ethnic studies came together, crafted the model curriculum with the ideas of ethnic studies at the core, and that, again, a group of people could get their ideas out and kind of really squelch this and, and really impede the progress and to know that various politicians cave to those groups rather than going forward with ethnic studies, as was the intent, right? And if people still want to have a conversation about the curriculum, well, let's have it. Because again, ethnic studies shouldn't be an add-on. It shouldn't just be one class here or there. We really do need some radical transformation in our K-12 curriculum overall. But unfortunately, they weren't willing to go that route and have really put the brakes on it. And as I said earlier, again, the talk show hosts and political pundits have used the language of the critics to inflame and misrepresent really what is at the core of ethnic studies. If this bill finally does reach passage, would California then be the model for the country? I think it should be in some ways. I, I guess I'll say a yes and. Uh, so yes, we need to have other states doing this. And I should say ethnic studies is, is being offered in other states. I, I believe in Oregon and Indiana. And so it wouldn't be the first, but in terms of has a requirement, yes. But also the crux of ethnic studies is that it also shouldn't be super standardized because the minute it becomes standardized, then it becomes an object of study as opposed to creating space for really what are the crucial issues in the communities that are in the area. So again, for blacks and Latinos, for example, in New York, right, have some same issues and concerns that we have here in California, but not all the same. And so to take a curriculum that was designed here and impose it there is again it defeats the idea and the nice thing about the model curriculum that was created here it really followed that ethos so it gave space for educators and students to be the co-creators of the curriculum which is really what it should be as well yes and under that kind of framework ethnic studies would be changing somewhat over time. For example, an ethnic studies that worked in Georgia 20 years ago, that same course might not work today since Georgia is so, so much more Latino than it was 20 years ago. 
Yes, but we'd have to keep in mind this history, right? Because that needs to be present too. But true, I mean, even again, going back to my teaching here over the last 20-something years. So teaching in Chicano studies initially then became Chicana Chicano studies, then Chicana Chicana Latina Latino studies, and now we are Chicanx Latinx studies, right? Because we have to really challenge the gender binary that is so entrenched in our society, and this is kind of students pushing us to think about that and to add the X. But also increasingly, the last 10, 15, 15 years, making sure that Central Americans are part of the curriculum here as well. So we have to be cognizant of it. But with that said, it still is a curriculum that does need to keep in mind the legacies of imperialism, colonialism, and the repercussions for groups that are conceived as communities of color. That was Dr. Gilda Ochoa speaking from Pomona College in California. Most mass shootings in the United States are committed by white men. But Dr. Maha Halal, co-director of the Justice for Muslims Collective and an organizer with Witness Against Torture, says even when the perpetrators of mass murder are white, Muslims are somehow brought into the discussion. Dr. Halal wrote an article for Truthout titled, Leave Muslims Out of This. Let's discuss white violence on its own terms. After the series of mass shootings that happened within a week, of course, the discourse, you know, was focused on a couple of things. One, sort of minimizing the violence by humanizing the perpetrators. Two, not revealing the breadth of the circumstances under which these mass shootings happened. And three, sort of humanizing the perpetrators, as is always done when they are white. And then four, repeatedly interjecting violence committed by Muslims as a way of understanding the mass shootings that had just happened, as if white violence can only be understood, as I, of course, wrote in the article, in the context of violence committed by Muslims. And as if there is no reference point or history of white violence, you know, obviously stemming from the origins of this country in terms of when white settlers came to the United States and, you know, obviously leading to the genocide of the indigenous folks as well as enslaving African-Americans. And so I think that um, it was very frustrating as a Muslim American looking into this discourse and seeing how many times this violence committed by Muslims was being brought in. And I think that the purpose was not only to minimize the historical legacy of white violence and the current manifestations of this violence, but to also suggest that violence committed by Muslims is the only violence we can really understand and which really has sort of deep roots and is inherent to Muslims, right? It's not inherent to white people, but it's inherent to Muslims and Muslims are inherently violent. So if we want to understand what leads to certain acts of violence, the only way to do that is to compare it to acts of violence perpetrated by Muslims. Well, certainly Muslim violence is the violence that the FBI spends most of its money trying to counter, despite the fact that these mass shootings are mostly by white males. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, whenever they're talking about responses to the mass shootings, it always seems to involve things like countering violent extremism programs, which we know have almost exclusively targeted Muslims. 
And we know that even if these programs are expanded, they're likely just to be implemented and directed at Muslims and really that anyone who comes under the fold of these programs who is not Muslim, it will A, be minor, B, they probably won't take action regardless of if they see a threat. And, you know, I think C, just not having the same impact in that it's not going to cause community fear as it does with the targeting of Muslims, because when it comes to the targeting of Muslims, the goal of targeting one Muslim is to sort of send a message to the rest of the community that you too could be surveilled, you too could be detained, you too could generally just suffer some sort of consequence as a result. And so when we look at like what would happen potentially to a white perpetrator, I, I don't imagine that anyone in who identifies as white would have any semblance of fear just because one white person was targeted by a CVE program. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, they said in the last week that law enforcement has been able to prevent a series of mass shootings by different white perpetrators. And in one of the cases, the individual was playing video games, and I don't know if he was saying or writing on social media something that was suggestive of wanting to commit some sort of act of violence. But in the article that I saw that was written about it, the mom said he's, you know, basically he's a good kid. He was just playing video games. And again, this constant narrative that it's just a misstep on the part of white perpetrators. But when it comes to Muslim perpetrators, it's just inherent to their very being. And we should just expect it's not about whether or not a Muslim will commit an act of violence. It's about when, because it's inherent to them. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? After about two decades of repeated horrific mass crimes by almost the same types of perpetrators who are almost uniformly white. The white society social response has been to label all of them anomalies, as if somehow they'll just stop. Absolutely right. And I mean, I think that's obviously part of a strategy of, you know, and you call them like a lone wolf despite the fact that there is a website, for example, 8chan, in which people, white people in particular, actively discuss their plans for a mass shooting. And that serves to minimize the threat of white violence committed by white men in particular, right? When you just sort of like blow it off as it's just, it's just this one brand of white person who's acting on their own. And so don't be afraid. This is exceptional. It's not something that happens repeatedly. It's not something that we can look to historically to understand the legacy of white violence and understand that this country is rooted in white violence. It's just about, oh, this is an exception. This is an anomaly. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. And so, you know, when it comes to like Muslims, obviously, people have been sort of trained to fear Muslims, whereas the outcome of these mass shootings is not that anyone is necessarily fearing white men, at least not in the way that the media presents the case. And so I think that that's a huge disparity. And I think, you know, for me personally, as these shootings continue to happen and in conjunction with the state's national security apparatus that is deeply embedded with Islamophobia, you know, I have come to fear white men because as a Muslim, and I assume as many other Muslims also think, you know, that they are a threat to our safety and well-being. And we don't think it's an anomaly. So it's just interesting how, you know, there's a lot of grace that's given to perpetrators that are white versus perpetrators that are Muslim. And obviously, 
the ramifications in terms of communities that share an identity with the perpetrator. Well, the white men that run the United States are bombing Muslims all around the world. Muslim nations are the primary targets of U.S. lethal force today. And you speak of these white terrorists in the United States as, in some ways, acting as proxies for a larger white power. Yes. You know, when it comes to state violence and the ways in which the government targets and abuses certain communities, the work and research I have done, what the sort of importance of this, why it's important to understand the role of the state, is that when the state is demonstrating to members of society that it is okay to target certain groups and that there is no accountability and that you can essentially do whatever you want, that is sending a very clear message to members of society that they have not necessarily the right to, but basically that they have sort of the ability to act without restraint because they know that whether or not there is a message from the government that condemns whatever action of act of violence a white perpetrator commits, they know that their violence is very consistent with the violence of the state. There's no question. There's no question that when white perpetrator complains about an invasion at this point, that's just simply echoing what the president has said about immigrants. So when we think about, again, like what is the the role of the state in all of this, it's to target people on the basis of collective responsibility and then send a message to members of society that there is a particular treatment that is allowable for various target groups and that there won't be any accountability or justice for that matter. And, you know, even when perpetrators of violence who aren't white receive sort of consequences in the form of detention or whatever it is, or prison sentence, it doesn't cause fear in the white community because they know it's going to be confined to this one person this one perpetrator. And so I think it it obviously has very different ramifications. And there's no additional measures that are taken, right, as we have seen when it comes to gun violence. There's no additional measures that are taken whenever there is a mass shooting, whereas when Muslims have committed acts of violence, there is definitely subsequent measures that are taken. So, for example, when there was the so-called shoe bomber, at the airport, the subsequent measure that was taken after that was that now everyone has to take off their shoes when going through security. And the reason why these subsequent interventions are so important is because they serve to solidify the idea that Muslims are terrorists, right? And so when you don't take any action, any subsequent action, after an act of violence by a white person, it again is reinforcing the idea that it's an anomaly that we don't need to take any additional measures because this is a one-off thing. Whereas with Muslims, again, we have to take subsequent action because this is likely to happen again because Muslims are violent. Yes, of course, it's fantastical to even imagine that the United States police agencies would operate dragnets in white communities in search of terrorists. And yet that's what happens in Muslim communities. And that's what happens as a matter of routine in black communities. Right. Yes. I mean, this whole apparatus is about differential justice and what it looks like and who's impacted and how we understand, you know, the scope of state violence that will either 
impact the communities who have a, a shared identity as a perpetrator or won't because it, it's deemed irrelevant. So when a, obviously when a white person commits an act of violence, it's not seen as inherent or inevitable. So there's really nothing you can do to solve that problem because the problem is a one-off thing. And we know that when it comes to other groups, you know, they're targeted writ large. There's no exceptions. It doesn't matter if there's so-called collateral damage. As long as you got this one person or can accuse one person of some sort of act of violence. And it doesn't matter if you're trying to find a needle in the haystack, right? When it comes to other groups who are consistently targeted by the government, it doesn't matter who gets in the way of that. As long as you theoretically find this one person, it's okay to target 5,000 people on the way to that one person. So this is just something that has happened repeatedly with the war on terror you know, which is, you know, my reference point in this article and in the work that I do. And the whole apparatus is built on the targeting of Muslims at large. And again, it just doesn't matter who gets in the way. And oftentimes, who they identify as a perpetrator has not committed any act of violence whatsoever. They're just entrapped by the FBI or some sort of context is misrepresented to allow for the government to surveil, to detain, to torture, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So it's very frustrating just being a researcher and organizer around the war on terror and just to see how acts of violence of Muslims are repeatedly portrayed as something that's inherent to the religion. And if it's inherent to the religion, there's no intervention. And then you also are trained to think that what violence Muslims commit should be seen in a vacuum, right? It has no relationship to the context. There's no circumstance that you can understand as leading to the violence. There's nothing that would allow anyone else or any state to take responsibility because Muslims are just violent. So each act of white terror is viewed as a singular act with a beginning and an end. And when it's over, it's over. But each act that is attributed to Muslims is another excuse to target the entire community. Yes, it's an excuse to target the entire community and to continue U.S. militarism abroad, interventions abroad. It's basically an excuse to perpetuate the war on terror apparatus. And, you know, that's been consistent. And people will say, like, it's not called the war on terror anymore. To me, it doesn't matter because it's whatever is operating in whatever name they're giving this national security apparatus, it, it functions effectively as if the quote war on terror is still in effect. So to me, it doesn't matter whether or not we call it the war on terror. What's happening is still the same. And Muslims are still being targeted. And there's been no change whatsoever, except that Obviously, we now have an administration led by a president who's overtly Islamophobic, which not only leads to more people supporting problematic policies, because Trump is very explicit about who he thinks is the problem, but also just further demonizes Muslims. And it's sort of, it's very cyclical, right? Um, Because when you dehumanize Muslims, you justify the violence that's directed at them. And when they are dehumanized, that supports another cycle of violence being directed at them. So it's sort of a a repeating cycle in the war on terror. And people often excuse former administrations, particularly the Obama administration. But as many of us know, obviously, the organizer and activist community, you know, Obama was 
often nicknamed and referred to as the deporter-in-chief. He used drone warfare exponentially more as punishment when you compare it to the Bush administration. And also, I mean, we know that the Bush administration is the one that built the infrastructure for the war on terror. And so while he obviously wasn't necessarily overtly and explicitly calling out um, violence committed by Muslims in terms of all sort of collectively responsible. To me, the end result was pretty much the same. And so what we have to understand in this particular moment is that whatever Trump is implementing at this point is simply an escalation of what was already built. And he wouldn't be able to do what he has been able to do had it not been for his predecessors. So I think people often like to pin the entire context of the violence onto Trump, but I think it's very important to understand the violence as systemic, and that's why, you know, in much of the work that I do, I try to bring in a range of different policies. I try to look at different time periods within the war on terror, and most importantly, just connecting the dots, because a lot of times people are in a specific niche around, you know, immigration, around torture, you know, Guantanamo, and you sometimes miss the links that kind of bind the whole thing together. And so I think it's important to, again, like look at the legacy, but also really understand the breadth and scope of the war on terror along many different facets and issues that have targeted Muslims. So when I look at the discourse, again, around these mass shootings, I think it's, it's very frustrating because while acts of violence committed by white people are treated in a particular way. The interventions that are suggested never really go through. There's never really any real punishment when it comes to white violence. And that makes sense, right? Because the government is often, and with the exception of obviously one president, has been a white president the whole time that this country has been in existence in terms of a settler colonial existence. And so when it comes to Muslim violence, all of a sudden, interventions can be implemented within a day. And most people, including congressional members, don't necessarily object because there's always this urgency of addressing the violence through a policy lens. And what comes out when you do the comparison, when there's actually a comparison that would look at the different ways that the government has intervened in different types of violence, you can clearly see that there is a much higher threshold for the violence that will come from the state when it comes to Muslims when it, versus when it comes to white people. And so that is consistently an issue when we think of the discourse around the mass shootings. And just generally, this whole war on terror apparatus, I mean, we know it was designed to almost exclusively target Muslims. So, you know, once we get over that, um, there's people that are still in denial, even on the left and on the liberal side, for some unknown reason. But we know when there's an act of violence committed by a Muslim person as a Muslim, that there's going to be ramifications and there's going to be consequences that people who live in other countries who don't know anything about what happened are going to experience. And so it becomes very frustrating. And when Trump came out and addressed the mass shootings from his office and talked about white supremacy, for for me, that was just him checking off a box. It wasn't actually about identifying that term is inherent to understanding the problem of white violence. It was just about appeasing the people who were repeatedly accusing him of ignoring this real system of oppression that is at the root 
of the violence in this country. That was Dr. Maha Halal of the Justice for Muslims Collective. Cheryl Rodriguez is co-editor of a fascinating new book titled Transatlantic Feminism, Women and Gender Studies in Africa. Rodriguez's co-editors are drawn from a large range of countries in the African diaspora, including Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Ghana, and Uganda. She says black people are always seen as the enemy in the U.S. It's always been important in order to maintain oppression, particularly in order to maintain the oppression of black and brown people. It's always been important for us to be seen as enemies of whatever decorum has been created by patriarchy, as enemies of the status quo as enemies of whatever is considered to be decent and quote-unquote right or correct. So that may sound harsh, but it is a reality that people live with every day, and many people die because of it, die at the hands of the police and others because of this notion that somehow we are enemies of the state or what the state thinks is correct or right. Yes, and you've got contributions from scholars and activists from throughout the diaspora. There are lots of states there. Are these activists in conflict with all of them? Yes, all of the contributors think about, in some way, shape, or form, they think about particularly Black women's lives in the context of Black feminism. So they're writing about these different historical, social, cultural realities through the prism of Black feminist thought. Some of the contributors are people who actually work on the ground every day with women, and particularly with women who are poor or women who've been oppressed. Some of the writers have observed certain aspects of women's lives and are writing about those things. There's a piece about Black women immigrants adjusting to life in France. And I'm sure that that particular writer worked as a, probably as a participant observer, writing down her impressions of what she saw women going through. In the piece that I wrote, I wrote about Black women and the housing crisis, Black women losing their houses because of demolition, particularly in public housing. So all of us were participants observers or participant observers in the pieces that we wrote. Now, all of the writers are, of course, Black women, but they come from places like Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Ghana, Uganda, and also, of course, the United States. What is the commonality here besides Blackness? I think that we're really, quite simply, we're concerned about womanhood and what that means. And we're concerned about intersectionality, regardless of where you are. On the African continent, people are not always concerned. In fact, blackness is really the last thing that people are actually concerned about. But when these women are writing and thinking, they're thinking about how gender intersects with other social factors such as poverty, such as patriarchy, such as state rule, state dominance, those kinds of things. 
they're thinking about gender and survival, gender and success, you know, how to balance family life with work life, how women work every day to survive. So those are some of the ideas that we all share. And there's not necessarily an alignment on, you know, what are the major oppressive forces. Everybody has their own notions of really what should be important. Something that's interesting is that with my co-editors, Dr. Ampofo and Dr. Chikata, both of whom are scholars in Ghana, we really had an interesting time working on this project because of our different perspectives on issues like race, for example. They sort of expressed at different times that, you know, Black people in America are, are seem to be obsessed with race. And I said, well, of course we are. And, and I talked about our history, which, of course, they understood. But it was very interesting working on this collaborative project with them that brought together multiple voices and understanding that the three of us, we don't agree on every single aspect of what it means to be a Black woman. So I think that we show that there are many different ways that women in Africa and the diaspora define themselves. And I think that because our book is called Transatlantic Feminisms, I think that what we're trying to communicate there is that there are many ways to think about womanhood, and there are many ways to think about the term feminism, which is a complicated and contested term historically and contemporarily. But what we were trying to show, and which we write about in the introduction, is that studying women's lives, studying gender in Africa and the diaspora provides us with a really important opportunity to look at differences and to understand the importance of differences and to really get that these differences can work in our favor and we don't have to necessarily use that as a source of conflict. Differences doesn't necessarily mean that we can't see each other as equal human beings. Now, race may have different weight in North America than in Africa, but you speak of hegemonic thinking being one of the banes of our existence, and that sounds like imperialism. Yes, very much so. And hasn't that been the destructive force in our lives from as far back as we can think or know? This whole notion of imposing terror on different groups of people, depending upon what the power, what the imperialists need. And that goes on and on and on in our history. It is something that we really need to think about. We function as people who respond to all kinds of policies and practices that seek to control our lives. So we're constantly in a state of reacting to these different kinds of terror that come up. Right now in the United States, we have these daily reactions to all kinds of terroristic policies and statements and behaviors. And so that, like imperialism, keeps people in a, in a state of agony, really, of trying to figure out what's going to happen to their lives. You know, what's going to change? How are we supposed to continue to live, you know, as the state changes and tries to ratchet up control of people's lives. 
You're very proud that many of these chapters are written by activists. Yes, I feel that activists are thinkers. They have to be. So I think that they bring a form of theorizing to any kind of intellectual project that is very much needed and appreciated. I think that the people who are on the ground doing the work play a really important role, not only in changing the world and in changing people's lives and transforming people's lives, but they also make a great contribution to knowledge production. We use what they do to teach our students how to do these things and how to bring together the knowledge that they gain in the classroom with practical knowledge, with knowledge that, again, can make a difference in people's lives. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy. When we sent out the call for papers, I asked for scholars and activists to contribute. And I actually wish that we even had more activists than are represented here. But I'm very appreciative of all the contributors and all that they did to make this book a reality. One of the things that probably comes under hegemonic thinking is the notion of progress. The folks in charge always say that what they do is in the interest of progress and will all mm -hmm. benefit in the by and by. But you ask the question, how is progress creating darkness? Right. Because I have been involved for a long time in housing issues and low-income housing issues. And I see that often when low-income housing is demolished, when people are forced to move, urban renewal takes place, all kinds of policies that are imposed on the landscape in the name of progress, those kinds of things really affect many people in negative ways. In general, we're seeing that many policies that portray themselves as policies for progress are policies and practices that help those who have the means to enjoy that progress. There are people who do not have the means to enjoy what we think of as progress, like new apartments, market rate, housing, those kinds of things. So these changes that occur, these transformations that occur through demolition and rebuilding, for example, need to be done in a way that takes into consideration inequality, inequality in income. Where are poor people supposed to live, for example? Where are poor people supposed to eat? So that's what I was referring to when I said darkness. In the global historical context, the Europeans, over the course of centuries of conquering the world, said that it was a project for progress, and yet millions were slaughtered and whole cultures wiped out. That's true. We're seeing the result of all that at this moment. It's really quite tragic to see that people are still being affected by, for example, the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade, for example, in the United States, and to just talk about the United States. I think that there needs to be more understanding of how we have all been affected by the fact that the Africans were taken from their homes 
taken from their continent and brought to the new world, so to speak, to actually build it. I'm very happy that this 1619 project is resituating and having an influence on people's rethinking and re-understanding and recreation of knowledge on what slavery actually means in the United States. We need to continue building knowledge on what it has meant in the entire Western Hemisphere. But at the moment, some of us who are paying attention to this project are um, learning about the political, social, and economic implications of slavery in the 21st century. So I think that it is really important to keep learning about the impact of slavery on us. And books like yours give us a look at what societies are coping with throughout the African diaspora. Yes, it's a first attempt. I I want to do more with that idea because I think that it's critical. It's really important. And of course, the work that we do as scholars and academics, sometimes it doesn't go as far in terms of reaching people. It doesn't go as far as it should. But I think that we're also teachers and we should also keep reaching out to our students to help them understand that scholarship plays a role in their lives in in raising their consciousness about real-life events and real-life situations. This book really looks at many different aspects of Black women's lives, and I want to acknowledge those who are historians who actually write about Black women's contributions to U.S. history in particular, the piece on Shirley Chisholm. I'm I'm thinking about that today because of our moving up to the 2020 election. But I also just think that it's important to recognize that there are all kinds of visions and voices in this book that make a contribution to our understandings of who Black women are. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.